0: But absolutely, fundamentally, the clear implication from this knowledge, which is supported by billions of data points, is if you want to grow, don't focus on loyalty.
1: Welcome to Branding Over One, an exclusive podcast by Branding Map. I'm Martin Shearer, and I'm super excited to be sharing some great conversations with our personal branding and marketing heroes. Rachel, it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on our show. You do have a very impressive record indeed, as co-founder of Ehrenberg Bus, the largest and most famous marketing science institute in the world. Now many listeners will know Ehrenberg Bus from its director, Byron Sharp, but you're actually the co-founder of this most famous institute. And according to the Journal of Advertising Research, you're one of the top 10 researchers of their entire 60-year history. We have a lot of fascinating subjects for us to delve into. We'll discuss some of your latest work on how advertising works and why you should keep spending on advertising. So if you need additional arguments to convince your finance director, stay tuned. And we'll also be diving into the marketing laws of duplication of purchase and double jeopardy. For many marketeers, these have become part of the mainstream marketing thinking. However, the less well-known details and nuances of these laws can be just as important to gain a competitive edge for building your brands. So welcome, Rachel. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Everybody knows, of course, Byron Sharp, which is the the, the face, the mascot, if you want to call it, of of the Institute. But you're actually one of the founders of the Institute. So I'm very happy to have one of the founders here and also your work and the the point that you're actually one of the top, top marketing science marketeers, uh, according to the marketing journals. So that's really great. So uh, welcome. So uh, let's immediately dive in Uh, your latest piece of work concerning uh, the stopping of advertising that really ruffled some feathers and marketers were extremely happy to see that you could finally prove this point. Can you say something about that?
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Martin. A pleasure to be here chatting with you. And so pleased that our research is getting the traction and interest that it is. You know, as researchers, we sit there for years looking at data and (laughs) writing. And you sometimes wonder if anyone is reading it. And uh, as an institute, we do feel that we're trying to tackle the big Practical problems, and it's really nice that this work on stopping advertising got such traction. Um, So, yeah, we're very Mm -hmm. excited by it, Um, but it is just like in a jigsaw piece, one piece of the puzzle, but we're excited to share that one piece. But it does fit into lots of the work we're doing on media and advertising and how it fits into that whole picture of, you know, what role does it play in helping brands compete and grow? Super.
1: Yeah. Could you say a little bit about your latest piece? About You mentioned that the um, uh, I liked the example that you gave, that advertising is like an airplane engine, that once you switch it off, you slowly go down, but you also need to keep it on to maintain speed. And that suggests that you're suggesting that advertising is more to maintain sales than to grow sales. But perhaps I misunderstood that.
0: No, you're absolutely correct for putting together lots of research. You know, we believe that advertising has a hugely defensive role. You know, it does maintain sales that otherwise would not occur. That's not to say that it doesn't also drive sales, but a big bit of it is defensive, refreshing the memory structures that already exist in people's heads. Helping brands come to mind for more people in the range of situations where they might. Um, But, you know, when we look at the single source research that we do, and that's where you track individuals for long periods of time and all of the advertising that they're exposed to, the evidence that comes from that is pretty clear. Advertising nudges the propensities of those people who are exposed to advertising to buy the brands that they see advertised. So when you use direct measures, the gold standard measures of advertising, you see it drives sales that otherwise wouldn't occur. But because of the competitive nature of markets where it's not just one brand advertising and the fact that people have repertoires of brands that they buy anyway and they're seeing your brand's advertising but also your competitors, it often looks like it evens out. And that's why it seems like it's mainly defensive. And it is because people have long-run propensities to buy brands, but that advertising, without question, when it's effective, does nudge, nudge sales.
1: It's so good that you put this research out there. I'm sure that all the brand marketeers can now take this research, go to their finance chiefs, go to the finance directors, and use it. Oh, Listen, this is our brand book, and this is why we need to support it, and this is why we need to put money behind it so this is uh, especially for let's say the smaller brands that don't have the possibility to have large internal resources research resources uh, to prove their own effectiveness this really helps you mentioned also in you as mm-hmm. you also mentioned you you
0: mentioned in the
1: uh, uh, in the um, let's say in the research you it did, so that it, it's actually more important for smaller brands to advertise then for larger brands, that larger, or did I did I read you, uh, did I read this wrongly?
0: There are differences based on brand size in terms of what we see, mm-hmm. but we think it's vital that any brand that wants to maintain sales and wants to grow advertise, um, because you know advertising works. So, the difference between big and small brands is, you know, big brands are more established. They have more buyers who are systematically more loyal to them. And the memory memory structures structures that exist in buyers' heads are stronger for more people. So that protects them for a bit longer. Smaller brands systematically have fewer buyers who know less about them. And we see this in kind of image attribute studies where, you know, they associate the brands with less attributes. So it's more dangerous for them. So we see that the decline is quicker and more stronger or more common for smaller brands because, you know, The memory structures are weaker. There's less of them to start with. So that's they see that decline more quickly on average.
1: That's super fascinating. So it's actually the smaller brands are in more danger because people uh, don't know them so well and have less of, let's say, uh, reminders in their heads or, let's say, uh, things to associate the brand with than bigger brands. So bigger brands are let's say, more protected in an over a time span before they go down, before the, ad, stopping, the stopping of advertising actually hits them. I- and
0: advertising doesn't work in isolation. So you're absolutely right there. But bigger brands are also more likely to have broader, more secure distribution. So exactly. if they stop advertising for a period, they're probably still on shelf. Whereas a smaller brand that stops advertising, you know, it's easier for a retailer to just give that shelf space to someone else.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that is so true. So we've noticed it before, shelf space is still one of the largest um, advertising mediums. And the more shelf space you can get, the more SKUs you can get, the more visibility you get in the shelf store, that is a way of building those brand structures as well and bigger brands tend to be able to protect it better they they seem to have better relationship to retailers uh, better shelf space and better negotiating power and even when let's say advertising decreases they still have the shelf space the skus
0: so to us shelf space is critical the quality and quantity of that distribution if we're talking cpg matters enormously yeah. but yes it has a role in communicating but we tend to talk about the importance of mental and physical availability and brands need both of those things
1: yeah so uh this is very interesting then then could you argue that the let's say in more mature markets advertising could be more important than more immature markets where because when in more immature markets many of the products tend to have less advertising. That means the shelf space in itself creates awareness. So it's not only about physical availability, but also mental availability. Like in a lack of advertising, what consumers would see would be the shelf space. And this, every time they walk by, they see the products. Could, uh, does that make sense to you when I make this extrapolation?
0: It does, but I'm not sure it's as simple as that. We mm-hmm. absolutely see differences between markets. You know, some markets you know, or categories are heavily advertised and brand plays a huge role and people have big repertoires mm-hmm. yeah. and in other categories there's a lot less advertising. Um, I think there's more at play and just that simple development stage of the market, yeah, doesn't explain everything.
1: It, may, it makes sense what you say. It, it makes a lot of sense. Now, you also mentioned that when, let's say, uh, smaller brands, you actually saw this in the research, dive deeper. So let's say when they stop advertising, their, their rate of decline is larger. Did, did I, let's say, uh, interpret that correctly?
0: Um, yes. So in terms of the study, we mm-hmm. report mainly average findings. And so in terms of across the total sample, mm-hmm. in, like we looked at 12 months or more sensations. So no advertising at all, well, less than 1% of the average yeah. for the brand. And so, you know, in that first year, there was a 16% decline in sales on average, which went to 25% in year two, and I think it was, yeah, 36% in year three. But then we looked at conditions where it varied. So the conditions that we studied in the paper were brand size, so Mm -hmm. roughly split the sample into three even groups of, you know, small, medium, and large but then also the prior trajectory of the brand. So was the brand you know, stable before it stopped advertising or in that year before our baseline was the brand already in decline or already growing. As we start to get to these subgroups, we're getting to smaller and smaller samples, particularly as we look more years out from that stopping. So we start to get less confidence in kind of the smaller groups, but absolutely there are quite a few lessons in that paper And brand size was one of the things that we found that mattered and as we talked about before those bigger brands were more protected so going back to that aeroplane example they didn't come straight crashing down and a bit more like a glider they could glide safely for a while before that decline happened and and this is on average so yes For those bigger brands, particularly those that were growing before the cessation, they were definitely even more protected. But the smaller ones, yeah, they were in trouble more quickly on average.
1: So this is really fascinating. And sort of the ones that are growing, could it be that they're growing, for instance, that they have, let's say, uh, other marketing activities, let's say trade marketing activities, uh, shopper marketing activities on the shopper floor or expanding distribution so that there's more at play.
0: Absolutely. And that's the nature of brands. You know, marketers are pulling all of these levers all of the time. For brands that are small and growing, you know, there's more room for them to be changing those things. So if you're a small brand, you know, there's scope to increase your distribution. For those already established big brands, you know, they're a ceiling effect. Most of them already have good distribution if we're talking the likes of spirits categories, which was our data set, and beer and ciders.
1: That's super. That's so, so fascinating. And it brings me to the other point. So let's say there seems to be so much work out there focusing on, 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 on let's say, the effect of advertising, the effect of media. For us marketeers, there seems to be less work out there focusing on the combination of P's. Like also my personal experience is, if you want to boost the market, focus on distribution, focus on MPDs, and combine that with, let's say, uh, uh, with advertising. And this combination of the, of the four P's, if you will, um, works very well. They seem to work better if combined than separately. There, there seems to be less popular discourse about the research that looks at the other piece. But perhaps I'm reading the wrong documents or looking at the wrong sites.
0: I find it fascinating that you think it's one of the big ones, whereas I would think it's actually one of the smaller areas of research, huh. particularly in the academic domain. I mean, advertising is really complex to research. No two bits of copy are the same. So describing and quantifying the effects You know, if you think of ads, you can have celebrities or not. You can have a motive story or it can be more fact-based. You can have, you know, so hundreds of tactics that you can use individually or not or in different combinations. So what you're studying is messy to start with. Separating out media effects from the execution and the copy is also a real challenge of, you know, is it? because of how much you're spending or what you're spending it on. And we're not even even thinking about scheduling of when you're spending it. Another issue with ad research is that so many businesses, so much of the world is focused on intermediate measures of effectiveness rather than direct measures so there's lots of measures of do people recall or recognize Mm -hmm. advertising you know it's memory effects but not did it nudge behavior yes um so yeah advertising is an incredibly complex messy area and I would say yeah, it's far easier and a lot more work is done in other areas where you can get panel data or, um, you know, observe things in store or run surveys. So, yeah, having recently been through lots of different university marketing academics web trying to find advertising researchers to use as examiners. it's quite hard to find people who are focused broadly on advertising quite a few do get excited about what's kind of new or hot so you know many will specialize kind of in social or digital or some aspects of it but there is a wealth of research you know in the institute alone we've got people studying innovation portfolios branding an enormous broad spectrum of different things. So yeah, lots of other things for you to read and explore. Yes, exactly.
1: So that means that we marketers have to look also at um, perhaps at different sources. And perhaps we have to change the discourse that we see on LinkedIn and the discourse that we see in uh, popular um, marketing magazines that do not reflect this academic wealth, or at least I see it less. There, is, uh, there seems to be that, that there is more academic knowledge there that we marketeers um, uh, know about. And that means that uh, either we marketeers or the trade press can tap into this new knowledge. This is um, an interesting finding that we have to work out in, in, in later shows.
0: So there is also an awful lot of academic research out there that is not worth reading. So earlier you were kind of talking about how the stopping advertising research is useful for marketers kind of to take to the finance department. Um, There's a huge void in my mind between a lot of the research that's done and what... Industry needs. You know, my vision from the Institute is we want marketers to be evidence based. We want them to be accountable for the decisions that they make and have the knowledge to do it. So, yeah, to me, and that's what we try and do in the Institute tackle those big problems and try and give evidence based answers to marketers. Um, there's scope to do a lot more of it. Super.
1: That, uh, that means there's a world of opportunities of trying to bring academics and practical marketeers together more. And that would make also, let's say, the marketing science research uh, more relevant. And I guess that benefits everybody. That is the thing. And
0: I'll just put a little ad in here because we know advertising (laughs) works. You know, we would love to see more marketers tap into the wealth of resources that exist at the Institute. So we do have this corporate sponsorship program whereby individual organizations subscribe, but that then creates a research budget that no individual organization alone can fund. And that's what funds studies like the Stopping Advertising Study, which was one that we were able to put out into the public domain. But there's a wealth of other studies, you know, decades of studies underpinned by billions of data points that exist that people can have access to. So you know, it's there and would love to see more people <laughs> tapping into that knowledge. And well, we are trying I... to get it out there as well.
1: Well, uh, since this is a podcast about branding and marketing, uh, uh, we're okay with um, uh, the message you're giving. So that's perfectly fine. Can you explain a little bit more about the duplication of purchase law?
0: Absolutely. We talk about that as one of the most fundamental laws that explains competition between Mm -hmm. brands. So it tells us that competition is predictable. Brands share customers with each other in line with brand size this is really important it has fundamental implications for marketing you know it doesn't matter what category you play in you compete most with the biggest brand in that category but you compete with all brands predictably based on their size so it's
1: not only that uh, consumers have let's say a repertoire of brands let's say they have four or five beer brands they have two or three soda brands but it's also that the competition within these brands is a a formula based on the size of the brand so let's say the that's fascinating
0: you can do the maths the maths is out there in published articles it's been around for a long time so any marketer can look at their market and determine what level of sharing they should have with the biggest brands, other medium brands or small brands, whatever, might be relevant in their situation. So given that that maths holds so strongly, it tells us that the likes of brand positioning or brand image or the history of the brand matter far less to competition than kind of lots of the ideas in marketing would have us believe. So, you know, if a brand wants to grow, the thing that matters is scale, that you're bought by as many people. And that's what helps you, you know, compete against other brands.
1: So you just mentioned uh, a couple of very interesting points there in, bet- in between the lines. You say, it ma- uh, let's say, so uh, positioning matters less. Now, um, uh, Byron Sharp uh, is often, um, uh, if you want to call it, the way, attacked it by saying positioning is not important. But I don't think that's actually what he is saying. Is actually saying, and the institute is saying, so let's say Byron Sharp is more the mascot of the whole institute, the institute is saying that uh, it matters less, but it still matters. Did I understand it correctly?
0: I did use the word matters less. If you want to grow, it's not about having a unique positioning. It's about being known by as many category buyers as possible, coming to mind for them, being considered, and being easy to buy for. Yes, you have to be a great example of your category, and in the language that we find useful, you need to be distinctive so that people, when they see your activations, when they see you on shelf, they know that it's you because that all helps refresh those memory structures that make it easy for you to come to mind. So it, it Brands can sometimes find it useful to think about what look and feel they have because it's incredibly important that they're consistent in how they look. And when I say consistent, we're talking over very long periods of time. So that distinctive assets, you know, they can appear in refresh in novel ways, but they should look like the brand, ideally over decades. And... That's, you know, great branding and that consistency helps the light buyers, you know, notice the brand and consider it more often.
1: And then once you build this consistency, can you play around with that? And can you play around with this, what we would call the brand markers? Because that's, that's some of the discourse that's now happening in marketing. That it's it's easier to play around with uh, your, um, your brand identity because this is what... Um, makes people more aware of the advertising. Um, how would you look at that?
0: So less, less so than many marketers would like to think so. Okay. But years yeah. ago, I wrote a paper with Andrew Ehrenberg where we mm-hmm. talked about creative publicity. So absolutely, you want to get attention for your brand. You know, you want people to watch your advertising. And so some freshness is good and you know advertising requires that but there are certain things that you shouldn't touch so it's not very many but you know your logo for a particular brand like M&M's their characters are something that they should yes they can have fun with them have them doing different crazy silly things but they should always keep them and yes you know the colors might change or Exactly how they're brought to life as animation techniques change and things like that can yes have tweaks, but the value of a distinctive asset is that it doesn't change. And when you understand how light so many buyers are to a brand, that you know they might just buy once in a year or once every few years, but because there are so many of them, that consistency of those few distinctive assets, or so a couple of cues that help bring the brand to mind, um, yeah, you want to keep. You, brand custodians, you know, those marketing managers mm-hmm. need to protect and defend them um, with having fun with them but not changing them.
1: Those are very good insights, very interesting. And could you then say that uh, differentiation can be a form of distinctiveness, that if you're different, people will remind you better. That will help build those memory structures easier and faster. Or is that going too far?
0: I think it's not useful to think of kind of combining them.
1: Mm-hmm. Brands
0: can have points of difference. You know, differentiation can and does exist. And it can be really important in certain categories in helping a brand grow. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that can, does happen. But, you know, for many marketers, it might be the once in their career that they're dealing mm-hmm. with that. The point about points of difference is, If they matter to the market, the norm is that competitors copy them. And so you don't have those points of difference into the long run. So when you do have one, you know, get excited, maximize it, use it to grow your brand. But what you also need to have for the long term is differentiation. So, you know, those distinctive assets that, even as the brand changes, give you stability and they're those mental shortcuts that make it easy for people in the long run to know you're the brand that they should be considering. So I think keeping them separate is a really good thing.
1: So uh, we have to keep them separate. You can use both, but distinctiveness is more important. Can I summarize that in that in that manner?
0: You need distinctiveness for the long term. Sometimes you'll have a point of difference. Make sure the world knows it's you by linking it with your distinctive assets and your direct branding. Super.
1: And this, uh, and this differentiation, because the distinctiveness for me is, is, is more clear. The message is very clear. You know, it's a message our readers uh, can take, uh, take with the media, media. About this differentiation, are we talking about brand differentiation here or product differentiation? Because, you know, you can indeed have differences in product that can be copied quickly. But if you yes. have a, a point of difference in brand, uh, let's say that you're uh, focused on some other occasions or that you have a slightly more upscale image or that you have more an a sustainable image, which, by the way, needs to be backed up with reality. Um, that is more difficult to copy. Or did I do I misunderstand that?
0: Trying to think how to tackle that one. So, our big focus and lens mm-hmm. is what brands need to do if they want to be big, if they want to grow. Yes. So, if I take it from that lens, you know, the route to growth is being inclusive and being connected kind of to all the different things that matter in a category. So, yes, it's possible to have differentiation in the way that you're talking about it by being very focused. But if a brand wants to grow, it doesn't want to be different. It wants to be a great example of the category and be associated in our language with the broad range of category entry points that are relevant to the category. So I think it's looking at it in a different way.
1: This is, this is really, really interesting, and um, to, to zoom in on this, because I think this is where a lot of marketeers struggle with. So to grow, it makes sense that you want to reach as many consumers within the category. That's the only way to grow. In the steps to the growth, does it make sense to focus on a subcategory first, like uh, uh, focus on sustainability, something where you can make a difference, where the consumers in that subcategory really focus on you can attract that and you can compete with the big boys if you're a smaller brand because then at least you have something that you can grow with that and then when you reach a certain size you have to become let's say less different from the category and it means that uh, or in a sense you can start with much more a specialized brand let's say a craft brand and slowly when you grow you become more category focused in the sense that you change your communication and change what the brand stands for to look for a larger part of the category does that make sense or does that not fit your your let's say your research
0: in theory kind of it sounds logical how often it happens that way i'm not a hundred percent sure we do know that you know some small brands do grow and become big And so if I think of something like an Uber, you know, it didn't exist if we got, I'm not sure when they came in, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it was, and yet it's been able to grow and get big in lots of different markets. So the consistent, robust thing is brands grow by being mentally and physically available to lots of buyers. They're good examples of the category. They fulfill a need that exists. So clearly some, you know, brands have started small by focusing on an niche, and I'm sure there's some bread brands that started out and got known because they could do gluten-free where other brands couldn't do that and then they started to get some scale. Um, so the thing that is very clear is what the end game looks like and that's being inclusive, having scale across the market. There might be different ways to get there.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's it's Because uh, uh, I, I totally understand. And when you look at examples of Mars and Uber, uh, in, in all honesty, you could not be more right. We tend to work with also smaller brands and scaling them. But you're very specialized. You build on large, let's say, a macrobiotic brand, a um, uh, um, uh, a small category craft beer brand, uh, let's say a hard seltzer or a zero alcohol, and then you grow within a subcategory, and then once the subcategory is, let's say, you're sufficiently large, you either try to go to category or you try to broaden your appeal to other subcategories. So that um, we've seen that in uh, in the data in in the data as well. So we had the duplication of of, of purpose of Purchase, sorry. We're working a lot of uh, purpose these days. So it's, I keep on saying that. The, uh, the other marketing law is the law of double jeopardy. Can you say something about that?
0: Absolutely, I'd love to get to double jeopardy, but just to finish off that last mm-hmm. bit in terms of the duplication of purchase and looking at those exceptions that you were trying to get at, Once you know these fundamental laws, you can start to say, are there meaningful differences? So one of the brands or examples that you mentioned, I think was zero alcohol beer or something like that. So once you know that you expect brands to compete in line with their size, sometimes you do see a sub pattern where some brands are competing a bit differently. So if someone buys one zero alcohol beer we see that they're more likely to buy other zero alcohol beers than size alone and the law would dictate us to expect to see so that can be really useful in starting to have an evidence-based answer to what is the category that you're playing in so when you see the law play out perfectly you could go you've got a normal healthy competitive market Sometimes we see sub markets in there. So maybe low alcohol, low carbohydrate beers, uh, you know, sub markets. They still share with major beer brands predictably in line with size, but there's a bit of a, a deviation. Sometimes you see that those new innovations or launches actually are a market in their own, sur- in their own right. That's an and very you good just way of Look at, at them you see the duplication of purchase law across those brands. And that says you're really playing in a different market. That's your competitive set. And that helps you know how to communicate, where to, how to set up your shelves and other things like that. So that's where duplication of purchase law can be really useful. In terms of the other law you asked about, double jeopardy, that's you know, one of the key laws of growth that tells us about loyalty. So at its most simple, it says small brands will always lose twice, they will have fewer buyers, and those buyers will be predictably less loyal on average. Flip side of it, big brands win. They (laughs) systematically have more buyers and those more buyers are slightly and predictably more loyal. So the implication from this is... Loyalty doesn't vary much between competing brands, but it does so predictably. So it's a function of the category that a brand plays in and the size of the brand. So really useful to know what your loyalty should be, you know, do the math. So you've got your benchmark of does your brand have the loyalty levels that it should because loyalty does exist. but. Absolutely, fundamentally, the clear implication from this knowledge, which is supported by billions of data points, is if you want to grow, don't focus on loyalty. You know, the thing that you have to be changing is your penetration. So brands that want to grow you know, need to be pulling or focusing on acquisition and just getting more buyers. And, and then you- as they're successful in doing that, they'll see that predictably their loyalty moves up as well.
1: And is this focusing on uh, new buyers or is this focusing on less frequent buyers or both? Because uh, uh, focusing on new buyers suggests that you focus on buyers that don't buy your brand at all uh, as opposed to less frequent.
0: Both. I mean, when you look at penetration and frequency, they're kind of two sides of a coin. They move together. Um, So often when you're looking at penetration, you're doing it within a window. So what's your penetration within the quarter or within the year? Um, But you can look at, you know, we've just done a study where we looked at penetration within five years. So what you're trying to do for whatever window you're looking at is nudge your penetration metric higher. In practice, what that means you're doing is you're moving your negative binomial distribution or mm-hmm. the law of buyer frequencies, yeah. that curve. So yeah. you're nudging non-buyers who didn't buy you in the last period to buy you. Many of them will have bought the category, but they've bought other brands. But some of them just wouldn't have bought the category as well. So you're bringing in completely new buyers versus the previous period But you're also nudging people who bought you once, who bought you two times, three times, and so forth. So you're nudging your light, medium, and heavy buyers. So you're, in fact, doing both, nudging penetration and loyalty. So, uh, but to take your words and be
1: very specific, uh, you're nudging new buyers or category buyers that don't buy you. You're nudging light buyers but heavy buyers, you can hardly increase them. I mean, they're already heavy buyers, so it, does it make sense? It makes more sense to, if I interpret your words correctly, to focus on the light buyers and on the uh, non-buyers that are part of the category.
0: You have to work harder for the non and the light buyers. They know less about you, they care less about you, you know, they just don't have the established memory structures in their head. So yes, you have to work harder. But yeah, you know, heavy buyers have repertoires <laughs> as well, yeah, they do, yeah, so you also you don 't want to forget them
1: yeah. so, so here's a, um, um, a, a question that that uh, is a little bit of a, dem- a dilemma. So if large brands have all the advantages, how do
0: small brands grow? Most brands are stable in the medium term, and that 's a pretty robust finding. But they can and they do grow sometimes. But it's hard work. I think Andrew Ehrenberg used to talk about, you know, marketing is about running hard to stand still. And, you know, as we've seen with Double Jeopardy, big brands have an advantage. They already have more people who know them. They already have more shelf space. And that's why you see so many tiny brands and it is hard for them to grow. But the brands that are successful they are able to get more buyers and they tend to do this by increasing their mental and their physical availability.
1: And this could be that, let's say, uh, increasing their mental and physical uh, availability in like subcategories in which the category is growing very fast. Think of brands such as uh, Ben & Jerry's or Patagonia that have, let's say, a very, very strong lifestyle or value uh, part of it. So, once you're or let's say uh, um, a brand that's within the hard sales category and then the hard sales category is growing extremely fast it means your brand or your product within that brand would grow along with that category
0: absolutely easier to grow in a growing category you've got more new buyers so it's easier to get their attention you know they don't have established repertoires if you're thinking of some of those very new categories. exactly so yeah
1: that is the and that is perhaps now I can combine uh, the ideas that the Institute has with uh, our findings on growing small brands because small brands often grow, uh, what we've noticed by being in a category. And th- this can be construed, this can be like a real strategy, or it just happens by chance. Your small brand that is growing in the uh, sustainable cotton. Uh, uh, let's say, subcategory of clothing. Well, that is expanding incredibly fast, so your brand expands incredibly fast. Or you are a small brand that's in the the organic uh, makeup category. Well, it's expanding incredibly fast, so you're expanding as well. Let's say organic makeup, let's say a brand that is uh, more, uh, will immediately get this luxury image in organic uh, makeup, and that would expand first within that category. And then jump to a more mainstream brand, to become a more mainstream brand, to be, uh, to be exact.
0: Yeah, I mean, where you're bringing yeah. in new buyers, if you can get their attention, get noticed, and you're easy yeah. to buy, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and, the, uh, and new buyers, they don't have this established memory structures yet. So they're more open to you as a new brand as well. This is really interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. Super. And, um, we're ent- we, um, there are so many cool things to talk about, but we're entering, let's say, the last few minutes of the show. So if we have, let's say, um, uh, a few minutes left, and if you were in my shoes, who would you ask on the show? Who would you like to interview?
0: There are so many topics that we've touched on yeah. and a wealth of institute researchers who could you know dive into some of them i know that you were interested in word of mouth that we didn't actually even get to so someone mm-hmm. like robert east or jenny romanik there we were just getting into the category um, growth the, so the team of other researchers at the institute like Magdalene teal and steve dunn and john dawes are all doing work in that space um, so many, it's, yes, I've, it's I've, good, I've been, there's I, lots I, to I've, talk
1: about. I've actually had a bit of contact with uh, Jenny Romaniok uh, uh, through LinkedIn. I'm a I'm, I'm very avid reader of her post and also of how brands grow too, where uh, Jenny Romaniok uh, played in a, in a very influential role. So we'll, we'll, we'll chase, we'll chase uh, uh, Jenny. I think she'll be an, an excellent contributor as well. So, and the, and the last question, uh, what do marketeers need to change?
0: There's real diversity in marketeers like brands, but I would like to see more of them just continuing on this journey to being evidence-based, making sure they understand the likes of the laws of marketing, that they put solid evidence on the table for things like business cases of how much their brands should spend, um, that they experiment, um, and there, I think there are big wins for those marketers who do those things. Super. Uh,
1: thank you, Rachel. Thank you for this great show, these interests uh, that you peaked within me, and I hope with all the readers, actually, I'm quite sure of this. I think this, the, the, um, everybody knows the Institute by now. Everybody knows, let's say, the main findings, but the subtleties. And the, um, uh, the data behind the main findings and let's say the, the, the narratives of, of where it's true, uh, uh, where it, it seems to be true, but it's less true or where it looks like less true, but it is actually true. So those are the storylines that I find our marketeers will greatly appreciate.
0: Now, we love getting into the conditions where things change. Um, there's lots of knowledge out there and always a pleasure to talk about it with people who are interested. So thank you, Martin.
1: Thank you, Rachel, for joining us today and sharing your experience and work. I learned quite some fascinating new insights and nuances while making this show. And I hope our listeners did too. And if so, dear listeners, please share our Branding of a Wine podcast with friends and colleagues. And when you have a moment... We'd love to get your reviews or ratings. Hope to have you all listening in on our next podcast. And thank you all for tuning in.